Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Floods along the Connecticut River are far from unusual. In fact, they're so common, many riverside parks are designed to spend time underwater during spring freshets. Sometimes, though, Connecticut River floods become dangerous, never more so than during the Great Flood of 1936. In this episode, Josh Shanley, firefighter, paramedic, and emergency management director of Northampton, Massachusetts, talks about that great flood, its devastating effects, long-term consequences, and the message it has for a world in climate change. From his new book, Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936, coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. Today on Grading the Nutmeg, we're talking with Josh Shanley, author of the brand new book, The Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936 just released by the History Press. For those of you like me who are great fans of the river, this is the book you've been waiting to read. Josh, thanks for coming on Grading the Nutmeg today. It's great to have you. Yes, thank you, Walt. I'm uh, very excited to talk with you about this. So before we get into this story of this terrible and terribly important flood, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in writing a book about the 1936 flood. Sure. So um, I've been a firefighter paramedic for uh, just over 30 years now. Uh, And since 1995, I've been living in the uh, Connecticut River Valley, one place or another, working in Amherst since 97 uh, on the Amherst Fire Department and uh, since 2009 with Northampton. And I currently live in East Windsor, Connecticut. So I've been uh, up and down the, the valley for a very long time. My wife was born and raised in Northampton. As part of my job uh, with both Amherst and Northampton, I worked outside of the fire department on the emergency management side. And a lot of that deals with flooding. A majority of the, the disasters in these communities up and down the river are somehow related to flooding. Uh, flooding initiates problems or other problems come about as a result of flooding in the area. So I've been dealing with these for a very long time. 2011, uh, with, when uh, Tropical Storm Irene came through, you know, we had uh, some very close calls. And it was, it was during those times where I started working on some projects around critical infrastructure and cataloging critical infrastructure in Western Mass um, mostly. But uh, as you know, the, the river connects all of these systems. So it quickly became, uh, you know, a longer, bigger project than we had anticipated. So for about three years, I got to tour around looking at dams and uh, the levees and the dikes and some of the pumps that had been installed in 1936 and somewhat after 1938. And then they were left. And uh, looking at those systems now and then through the lens of 2011 with Tropical Storm Irene, it became evident to me that, you know, we have a problem. So the way I look at these situations now is by um, looking back uh, in history, we can learn a lot about what's in store for us ahead if uh, these issues around climate change do work out the way that we're anticipating. So, And that's one of the really interesting things about this book. It's very much a historical study, but as you remind us at the end, it's got very significant and very real lessons for the present and for the future. 
flooding, as you pointed out, it's nothing new along the Connecticut River. It's been going on, I think, as long as there's been the river. There have been all kinds of floods. Some of them have been devastating. Some of them just come and go, and people have learned to live with them. But four floods especially, 1927, 1936, 1938, and 1955, just had a kind of catastrophic character to them. So why did you decide to focus on the flood of 1936? Well, being a student of the history and looking around, I was running into plenty of books on 38, the Long Island Express coming up, the hurricane coming up the Connecticut River Valley. There's there's lots of books out there on that. Not too many on 55. So that's probably one of my next projects. And 27 was um, rather isolated, all things considered. It did a lot of damage, most of the damage in a, a relatively small part of the area. But when you compare 36 and 38, they were both devastating, as you said, uh, 36 and 38. But they were um, very different events. And to call one worse than the other, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to put metrics on tragedies, but the numbers do indicate that the flood levels crested higher in 36, the, the event lasted longer in 36. So in that case, you know, it was, some, it was worse. It was also more, much more widespread. One thing that I'd like to emphasize, you know, this book is about the Connecticut River Valley, but during that period in March of 1936, floods were all over the Northeast and, and then some. I mean, we I have headlines from the New York Times saying flooding in uh, Virginia, Ohio, up as far as Maine. Uh, the Merrimack Valley was really hard hit beginning March 9th through the 22nd. So my interest really focused on the Connecticut River Valley because that's where I'm from. I'm familiar with it. But it's simply uh, uh, a slice of what was going on around the rest of the world. So the, so the whole eastern half of the United States was really subject to flooding in this particular year. Do, do you have the sense that the Connecticut River Valley was was worse than the other places? Well, it was different in that the terrain, and I'm not a geologist, but I, I, I've learned a lot hanging around with other uh, with, with geologists, mostly from UMass. And you know, the Connecticut River um, has a long history and there's varied terrain. You know, we're going to be talking about different, um, what, I, what I've been calling hubs along the river, this 410 miles about from the Canadian border down to the Long Island Sound. And, you know, there are different hubs and some, some of these hubs, like you look at the different communities that are built along the, um, the river and some fared better than others, all were impacted. Um, but that a lot of it that had to do with the the terrain and the depth of the river at certain points. And that is one of the things that that people who study the Connecticut River know. It's really a a river basin with many major tributaries, and it's it's ringed on both sides by two mountain chains, especially in the north. You have the Green Mountains on the Vermont side, the White Mountains on the New Hampshire side. And that, when it comes to floods, can be a significant factor. So yes. let me ask you this. The 1927 flood was a spring flood. The 1955 and 36 floods were late summer and early fall, and the 27 flood was in November. Does the time of year make a difference in terms of floods impact along the Connecticut River? Yeah, well, as you're getting to the, the time of year seems to indicate, you know, what is 
why this, the floods are occurring. So we get, you know, we've had for 400 years and, and probably much longer than that, um, we've had spring floods, uh, freshets, you know, the, the snowfall melts, the ice along the river um, starts to break up and create um, create uh, dams and the, the plains along the flood, um, along the river flood. That's just nature doing its thing. Um, the hurricane coming through in 38 was um, unusual in that it took a track up the Connecticut River Valley that doesn't normally occur. And in 55 was um, different because those were two back-to-back storms. That was Carol and Diane, I believe. And, um, and then followed up later in 55 with another unnamed storm that did tremendous damage in Connecticut uh, in the Naugatuck River Valley. Um, so they're all coming from different reasons. And, you know, each of them plays out differently. None of these is going to you know, look the same when you start looking at the, the rise and fall of the rivers. You mentioned the tributaries. Um, being in Northampton, you know, we watch when the floods come, we watch the Mill River come up spike, you know, within the first few hours. Then, you know, uh, after the skies start to clear, that's when the Connecticut starts coming up. And we start looking at, you know, turning uh, that way and watching the flood level come up and last much longer typically. So there's a rhythm to it that we have seen. Um, and the, the, the challenge is going to be looking forward with climate change. Our precipitation patterns are going to be shifting. So we're, we're likely to be getting longer periods of drought followed by spikes. And our infrastructure just isn't designed and wasn't built to, to deal with that, that kind of um, deluge. Yeah, it's interesting. You've already given us three variables that really are big factors on when and how floods happen. The topography, the uh, climate, of course, and then the the tributaries and the location along a tributary. So the river may flow north to south, but it's picking up water all along the way and it's coming you know, against man-made and other obstructions and interventions. It's a very complicated business, this studying floods. Give us some idea of the scale of the 1936 flood. How bad was it and how did it develop? Well, I mean, beginning on March 9th of 1936, we started to get um, uh, rain and the system just moved in and stayed. And there were two peaks. Um, And if you look at some of the headlines, you know, beginning around March 12, the newspaper started to talk about, you know, the flood uh, was rising again, but it, it was typical. It was to be expected. In hindsight, what they realized is that the winter of 35 was particularly cold. There was a lot of snow. So the depth of the snow was unusual. When the March storms moved in, the temperatures came up and the precipitation moved in and hung over the area. And so it was this combination of events that that really caused a problem. You're getting very heavy spring rains combined with very heavy snow melt at the same time, right? Correct. And and then the ice on the on the river and the tributaries was particularly thick as well. You know, the, you know the, that's one of the things I see over and over again when I was reading your book that it seems like the problem often is as much ice related as anything else that 
Ice is a real factor in this story, isn't it? Yeah, in this case, it was. I mean, uh, many of the bridges that were washed away were moved off their foundations by huge ice dams that had built up there for for days and days at a time. You see stories um, over and over again with public safety officials blowing up ice dams with dynamite. What happens is that the ice melts, and then with the temperature fluctuations, it breaks up into chunks. You know, reports that I was looking at in the newspapers say that they're the size of automobiles are larger and, and they just bind to one another and then they butt up against these bridges and start to shove them off their foundations over a period of time. And what public safety uh, officials would do would be to either walk out onto these ice dams or drop dynamite from airplanes flying above. Um you know, I can only imagine what that looked like, you know, back in the day. Yeah, in 19, you know, in 1936, uh, dropping aerial dynamite bombs onto ice floes. And in some cases it worked, and, and, and in many cases it did not. Is this a common problem with spring floods? Do we have the same thing happening now when there are spring freshets and, and they cause problems? Is ice one of the major components? Yes, they still happen, but the, the infrastructure that was put in place after 36 and completed in 38 and going into the early 40s, it, it works largely. Um, but you see areas where the Connecticut River floods. Again, in Northampton, we know in March and you know, the Connecticut River is going to flood. The Oxbow is going to flood. In Hartford, you go through the um, the parks along the river and they're flooded, you know, but that's what they're designed to do. So the, the infrastructure largely works. And we had a similar sequence of events with a very um, cold winter, uh, lots of snow, and then real spike in temperatures with a precipitation event in 1982 that really tested the systems. And they, by and large, worked. Um, so we see that. we A lot of flooding um, in 2010, but it doesn't have the same impact, you know, um, in uh, in uh, Northampton after the uh, 1936 flood, the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers came in and redirected the Mill River. So that's no longer a big issue. So that was one tributary. In Hartford, as, as your listeners are probably aware, you know, the Park River, the Hog River, as it's sometimes referred to, that goes through the park was put underground and through about nine miles um, buried um, so amazing, huge, very expensive, uh, very complicated infrastructure systems were put in place. So yes, the river still floods, but no, the impact is largely different. And that that park, that decision to bury the Park River was a direct response to this 1936 flood, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the damage going through um, the center of Hartford was was largely attributed to um, the, the uh, Park River flooding. And then, you know, again, the Park River coming in as a tributary with that spike and then the Connecticut River following up later with a, a, a longer um, swell, arguably doing more damage uh, north to south versus east to west. So the 36 flood was unusually long you say, compared to other floods. Now, why was that? And did it happen the same time up and down the river or was it kind of a rolling flood? Over a period between March 9 and uh, around the 21st, March 20, 21, 22, 1936, during that whole period, about two feet of rain fell. And there were two spikes, the first one around the 12th and then the second one around the 20th. 
what happened was that when it stopped raining around the, the 12, people had a sense of relief, understandably so. Obviously, we didn't have meteorological tools that we have available now. So people breathe the sense of relief. But with a short respite, it started to rain again and rain rained more. River already being swollen, the ice, more ice started to come down. So it just made a, an awful situation that much worse. And why this when this peaked around the 20th, the damage was particularly bad. And uh, the damage was equally distributed up and down the river from uh, up as far as, you know, uh, White River Junction down to Middletown. There was nowhere to hide. One of the things that uh, I, I was really interested in and impressed with in the book is the attention you pay to the development of infrastructure along the Connecticut River that was involved in the flood. For instance, gas works, the dependence of New Englanders on industrially created gas to heat and fuel their homes and provide light. And a lot of those plants to do that and the lines to run them were along the river, right? Yeah. And that's something that I'm learning about as I go. I'm not a civil engineer, but I really find that the history of infrastructure particularly fascinating. When I think about infrastructure, I break it down into four broad categories, water, energy, transportation, and communications. And as it happens, the, the means of distributing all of those along the same route. So, you know, where we had, you know, highway systems or uh, turnpikes back in the 17, 16 to 1700s, they turned into what we, you know, where we put our railroads and they turned into highways and et cetera. And then those run along the rivers. Uh, same with the energy, you know, when we are distributing energy, um, it, it it's largely along the same paths, following the population. What was going on is um, manufactured gas was being happening very locally. And there are systems that are out there, but essentially what they're doing is they're processing coal, capturing gas, and then keeping it and then distributing distributing it locally. And, and into the 30s, that was a very common system. And, it, and there's a transition that's happening at the same time um, in the 30s nationwide with this electrification. This was part of the New Deal that happens. You know, part of the New Deal was to um, the elect electrification of the United States. So that happens in different places um, throughout New England at different times. So when you look at each community has a different, very local system of producing gas, um, capturing it, storing it, and then distributing it. And after the 1936 flood, after 38, going into the 40s, there was, a, there was this changeover from this um, uh, manufactured gas distribution to largely to electrification. And that happened, New England was actually a lagger in that regard, which I found interesting going through my um, research. But it, though New England may have lagged behind the rest of the country, prior to the flood, there is a... a significant amount of hydroelectric dam manufacturing and plant manufacturing along the Connecticut River system, right? Yes. Yeah. Beginning in the, at the beginning of the 20th century, in the early 1900s, the Connecticut River and many of the tributaries, the Deerfield in Massachusetts and somewhat up into Vermont, is being dammed with hydroelectric um, uh, turbines. And the distribution from those 
plants is one of the challenges that, you know, it's met and, and overcome um, in, in many regards. Interestingly, after 36, when the Corps of Engineers came in and started building additional dams and infrastructure, uh, flood, flood management infrastructure, those dams did not widely have the ability to distribute or to generate electricity. There's uh, politics involved in why that was the case, but that was the big uh, difference between the early 1900s and the dams that were built in the 30s and 40s in the area. And and when we're talking about dams, I think maybe people are thinking of smaller dams, but there are some of these hydroelectric projects, even by the 1930s, are really uh, pretty big in scale and scope, aren't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at the Comerford Dam up in uh, Vermont, it's I, I believe it's, it's on scale um, with the Hoover Dam in terms of just you know, the volume that it's holding and, and the, the amount of materials. And they were, when they built these dams, there were villages that were built and, and rail systems that were built exclusively to um, facilitate building these things. Men were killed building these dams. They took, it was very hard work, grueling work. And uh, it, 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 you know, it took a long time and was just um, a lot of, took a lot of grit to work in these places. When you look at the stories behind these dams, a lot of it was around the villages and the people and the culture of the workers around these places. And, and in many instances, the sites that are chosen for these dams, like the Comerford Dam and uh, Mackendo Falls, are at places where be prior to the dam being built, there was fast running water. And it's a great site both to collect and contain water and use it to generate power. Now, when a flood like the 36 flood comes along, are these places in trouble? In many cases, yeah. Um, Yes, to your point, they're built at points along the river where the velocity of the of the water is turning at is moving at such a rate that it's going to turn the turbines faster. That's by design, but it also makes building them that much more challenging. They don't typically build the flood um, build the dams across the the places where the water isn't moving fast. So you look at Bellows Falls, and it, it's a place where the you know the shores are very close together, creates a, a very steep terrain, and the velocity of the water moves very quickly. Now, for the most part, um, these dams were built with that in mind, and many of the larger dams didn't suffer. You know, uh, the, the biggest concern um, around March 20 was the Vernon Dam in, uh, in Vermont was um, going to fail. At this point, you got to remember what was going on in the, in the world. You know, we were in the middle of the Depression. There was uh, a big push on to build these kinds of systems. Um, And also by the 20th, reporters were widely distributed up and down the river waiting for something to happen. You know, this was this had been going on for some time. Now, around March 20, um, word was out that the Vernon Dam had failed. Um, And even down uh, from Northampton, the state police barracks issued a warning that the Vernon Dam in uh, Vermont had failed and people should be prepared to evacuate. The, um, the Vernon Dam is near Brattleboro, right? It's right across the Vermont border. That's correct. And yes. if that dam failed, 
then that water is heading for the population centers along the river, right? It's moving into the the high high density areas. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, from uh, it's just a few miles north of the Massachusetts border. So the you know the next big stop would have been Greenfield down to Northampton into Springfield and Chicopee, and then down into Hartford and, and Middletown. And that if that dam had failed, that would have been um, uh, a larger tragedy in a very short period of time. I mean, that's that's an immense structure. Um, it, it was um, it was threatened. Um, one of the resources I have is um, a journal that was produced uh, by the New England Power Association that gives, um, you know, personal accounts of the the men that were in those structures protecting them. And there was water breaking through windows um, in the book. And um, I've got pictures that were taken from the the uh, uh, structure of the Vernon Dam that show water coming in. Um, there are interviews of, of the men that were in there um, protecting that. And if that had failed, it, it would have been utter devastation um, south and all the way through Massachusetts down into Hartford, most certainly. It, it's really a dramatic story, that especially, I mean, there are, there are hundreds of dramatic stories that, that go along with this flood. But the the story you tell about what's going on at this Vernon Station hydroelectric plant, there's some there's some really courageous stuff happening. And and I think I should point out now that for people who read this book, there are several huge bonuses, but one of them are the images that you have because you can you can talk about how devastating a flood is and you can enumerate the losses, but it's only when you see these pictures do you get a real sense of the incredible power of this raging river and the kind of damage it can do. Talk to us about some of the key places where the power of this river showed up during this flood. Where did it affect people the worst? Well, the Vernon Dam, that was actually pretty well documented in the WGBY story with um, by Ed, Kl- Ed Klikowski. He interviewed um, workers that were in that dam. So that was, that was an interesting. But what I found particularly fascinating was the Deerfield River and all of those dams, six dams along the Deerfield that were um, really impacted. And, and again, in a similar way. You say the Deerfield was the hardest working river in America? That's what they called it, yeah. Um, and it was because it was harnessed so early on by like 1905 um going into i think 1912 or so there were there were up to six dams on the on the deerfield turning turbines creating electricity um so that's why they 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 named it the hardest working river in america and the flood really was partially because of the terrain of the river itself the flood was a very serious problem along the deerfield right well i mean that's why they built the dams there because of steep terrain the water's moving along um at an incredible rate and then when you add the volume that's where the damage um, really happened but in addition to the ice the other issues that were coming up were the um, bridges that were being washed away the covered bridges i have a list in the book of dozens of bridges that were washed away but along the deerfield one thing that i found um, particularly fascinating was that the this culmination of events was occurring Um, ice was building up along the, the backside of um, massive covered bridges, wood, wood structures. The bridges weren't being washed away or shoved off their foundations um, by themselves. People, townspeople, were shoving the bridges down. 
And what happened in the Deerfield River, and I believe it's the Cold River in Coleraine, they actually lit bridges on fire in an effort to dislodge them. So there's one story that I came across in the New England Power uh, Association journal where a bridge in Coleraine is lit on fire in an effort to clear the, the ice behind it. It breaks away and launches itself downriver on fire into um, one of the dams uh, that is, uh, I believe it was Deerfield number two, if I'm not mistaken, um, around Shelburne. So imagine that, you know, flood water raging through windows, and then all of a sudden around the, the, the top of the river, a, a massive wooden bridge on fire comes headed down your way. There were actually people still in the structure, yeah. Just to be clear, people in in towns are pushing these covered bridges off their foundations and sending them downstream. Why? Because they don't want them to back up water and send it flooding over them? Yeah, that's correct. They, they, it was creating a dam. It was uh, creating flood in, in the community. So the I think the logic was if we get rid of the bridge, we can always rebuild that. But the, the damage that's occurring as a result of the flood is, is so- just... Uh, So we'll save ourselves by sending our bridges a flaming missile downstream to the next town. Must have been been good for inter-community relations. Well, I only came across that situation a couple of times on the the deer, as a a tributary on the cold river, which leads into the um, the deer field and then downstream. Interestingly, looking forward, you know, again, I mentioned uh, uh, Irene in 2011, the Chickley River in Hawley, Mass., which is in that vicinity, um, that had a lot of damage as a result of Irene. A lot of erosion washed away Route 2 and Route 8. And when that was rebuilt, um, the the people who uh, made decisions uh, put a lot of uh, riprap along the side and straightened it. And what that did was increase the velocity of that water um, immensely and created lots of problems downstream. Um, it, it turned into a big legal and a political problem and they had to undo that. Um, and I can only imagine what that, what that cost in terms of dollars, but politically it was a big issue for, for about 18 months um, after 2011. It, from an emergency management perspective, you know, I saw riprap and concrete and, and I thought that was the right way to, to, um, to fix the problem. But it, it turns out that's not the case, you know, that a lot of the um, uh, the natural solutions that are coming in now in terms of mitigation are the proper way to deal with these situations. One of the more surprising things I found in your book was the, a discussion of the towns that were connected to the Quabbin Reservoir and how they were affected by the flood. To kind of set this up for listeners, tell us about the Quabbin Reservoir and how and what these towns were and why for already doomed towns, this became just the, the watery nail in the coffin, maybe. Yeah, it is. It is really tragic. I mean, again, this has been the midst of the Depression. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I'll use my air quotes, progress going on in terms of providing water to the city of Boston. You know, Boston has a long history of uh, needing drinking water. So aqueducts are being built. And this goes back, this goes back and forth um, for years and years and generations. Finally, during the 30s, a decision, going back earlier in the 30s, the decision is made to um, to build the Quabbin in, um, you know, uh, in what's around where now, uh, Belchertown area. 
in Western Massachusetts in the Swift River Valley, a tributary to the Chicopee and then ultimately into the Connecticut. Anyway, what goes on is they're well along in that process and, and uh, five communities, I believe, um, in, in that Swift River Valley are notified that they're going to be flooded. And over a period of time, people are being evacuated and you know it's a long-term process. What ends up happening at this particular time, however, is that in, in the construction, what they're doing is they, they're calling these uh, uh, construction workers uh, woodpeckers because part of the process was to go in and clear the valley of, um, of wood, of trees, of any woody debris and, and relocate structures or demolish them and move it out and so forth. And they're doing this at the same time they're building a dam at, at the bottom, the Windsor Dam massive structure and they're going to create this reservoir and then an aqueduct that's going to go into Boston. So there are reporters in the area they're documenting this, you know, what was going on with the building of the dam and they so they happen to be there while the flood comes in. And you know, you don't need to be a geologist to understand that it it's the um trees, the roots, the rooting systems that hold this steep terrain in place. And they were in the process of clearing that away. People were still living in the area because they didn't end up needing to move out for, for uh, a year or two after. So there were very many people in the area. The, the rain came down, torrential downpour, and just the devastation in that particular area was, um, was worse, arguably, than anywhere else. South of the, of the Windsor Dam, the terrain around the Swift River is especially steep and narrow. So the, the velocity leading into the towns of like Ware and Palmer, Three Rivers, et cetera, was really was just really devastating. the The dam system wasn't set up yet. The railroad was in the process of being converted to construction only. So there was just a lot of activity and a lot of damage at the same time in that in the Quabbin towns. You know, some of the some of the most haunting images in your book, for me, are the ones that, and you see this happen in a few places you see hundreds of people from these towns kind of clustered together. They're really, they're tightly packed together on a street corner or right on the edge of someone's yard. It's almost like a crowd of spectators at a sporting event, but they're sitting looking at their, right at their feet, this flood passing through the streets and their homes and their houses. It's, they're, they're just remarkable images to me. Of, of people who are kind of stunned by what's going on. Yeah, I think there were a lot of people that just did not know what to do. Again, there was not a whole lot of information coming out, right? Um, people didn't know um, what was going on, how long this was going to last, what they were supposed to do. So yeah, they, there were lots of photos I've come across with people just grouped together, standing there looking. A lot of reports after the flood of um, traffic um, uh, going over the existing bridges in Middletown, um, police directing people not to cross bridges, but just people lining up. And you got to assume that they just didn't know what else to do. It was just an amazing thing. And people had no context. You know, nowadays we understand that it's going to be raining in the next seven minutes and it's going to last for another 12 and yeah. then it'll clear again. At that point, people just did not have the information. You also, I, I keep coming back to it is that, um, you know, the, the, the economic impact of the Great Depression along these communities, you know, this, these were all largely mill towns um, and they were being, they were already um, undergoing a huge transition, arguably not for the better. You know, these, a lot of the mills that were built along um, 
the, the Connecticut River and the tributaries, they were the sole source of um, the economy in these communities and they were just destroyed. So the people were just left with nothing in many cases. Would you argue that this flood is a turning point for New England? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I would. And, and, and I think the evidence supports it because of the, there, was also, there was already a long history of floods. I mean, this was not the first one, but there was a, the Flood Control Act of 1936 as part of the New Deal. A lot of this infrastructure that went in was built by New Deal projects, um, Community Conservation Corps, um, CCC boys, they called them, um, WPA um, projects uh, and PWA project, public works authority projects. They were massive and they cost a lot of money and they were put in by people that were looking to provide service and they were um, done, they were compensated for that. So in, in that regard, yeah, there, there was an evolution of a flood, the 1936 Flood Control Act, but this was, this was arguably a turning point, yes. So these are the, this flood control, this this recovery and mitigation effort that is, as you say, mm-hmm. a massive WPA Great Depression project, or at least it started then. This is all handled by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They like manage the flood control process. Is that right? Yeah, from my understanding, they were the engineers and designers. Um, and through a variety of the New Deal projects, that's, that's how they were constructed by um, the, the, the men that were actually doing this work were um, through a variety of New Deal projects, CCC, WPA, PWA. That's how they were funded. But they were designed in large part by the, the Army Corps of Engineers. One thing I found interesting was the, you know, the amazing complex network of, of these systems. You know, the system that protects... Uh, Hartford and, and Springfield and Chicopee, the, the dams that were built to protect these, um, you know, these urban centers is sometimes, you know, 12, 15, 25 miles away. Um, so they're amazing and they're sprawling and they're just the way that they're connected and, and managed. And, you know, one, one dam is opened at a certain point. Um, but the timing of this, I found particularly fascinating. And these, so- are, these are issues that are still going on today. So who I've I've always wondered about this. Who is the the man the Oz behind the curtain who kind of regulates all of these water release uh, movements from these flood control and hydro dams? You know, uh, as a matter of fact, you're putting me on the spot. There is a there is a flood control center. It is in Massachusetts, and now these are these. Uh, Gauging stations and dams are all monitored by the Corps of Engineers and, and controlled, probably electronically um, using uh, SCADA systems and things like that. It does open up a whole other set of questions and concerns regarding cybersecurity, though, I'll say, you know, it's it, it's not un- uncommon nowadays to see breaches in cybersecurity. Um, there was this recent system down in um, Florida that was breached, you know, um, so controlling these systems is, a, is a, an advantage, but it does present a whole set of vulnerabilities at the same time. I, I think this is one of those places where your experience in emergency management really gives you some important insights into uh, what these floods are about and why they continue to matter today. Uh, in the book, you document flood mitigation efforts along the Connecticut River Valley that continue into the 1960s. 
And and you also point out the difficulties involved because getting flood control that works for, say, Hartford and southern uh, southern New England is something that you often have to uh, create by putting a dam up in Vermont or New Hampshire and getting all these places to work together really creates uh, 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 political challenges, doesn't it? Yeah, it gets very complicated politically because, as, as you just pointed out, the, in order to prevent the floods that are going to inundate uh, downstream Hartford, Springfield, and in the more uh, heavily uh, populated areas, the infrastructure needs to be built north in Vermont. Um, who's going to pay for that? Who's going to manage it? When that, you know, they often create reservoirs in a, in a similar fashion, but different than the Quabbin. But the people in those urban centers aren't the ones that are impacted by that. It's the people in the north. What was going on at the time um, around the New Deal was this, um, the Tennessee Valley Authority was had been um, put into place. And that was largely unpopular and not handled um, well, arguably. And, and people were concerned that they were bringing in that, that mindset and that, that political position in, into the flood management system and the politics around it in New England. Um, it, it goes into the 50s, and there are examples of Wilder Dam uh, just north of uh, White River Junction, I think, um, went into the 50s, and it took them uh, until about 1954 until the system was finally approved, um, and, and it was hard fought. Um, I wouldn't take a side on one, on one over the other there, but it was just locally hard fought. Um, agriculture um, had input farmers. Um, local communities, politicians. Um, it got very complicated for a very long time. These complicated issues continue even into today because some of these some of these dams that were built in response to uh, the 36 flood are now coming up for relicensing e- even today. And there's kind of extensive public hearing process going on about whether they should be relicensed and what kinds of mitigation, environmental mitigation they should do. Very complicated stuff. And that kind of brings us to something that you discuss near the end of your book, which is the effects of climate change on this flood mitigation infrastructure that now is, what, a half century old or older? Older. I mean, uh, again, looking at Northampton, we have a a flood management system that was put in place in 1940. There are three uh, engines in our flood management building that were installed in 1940. The dike system was put in uh, around the same time. And much of this, these systems up and down the Connecticut River um, are just, they were put in and not maintained. Um, I know in, in, again, in my community, they were estimating uh, even in 2012 that $2 million of, of uh, upgrades were needed. On the other side, if we had a flood at the level of 1936 and that dike system failed, there would be hundreds of millions of dollars of damage. And and the other thing that we're finding, and is that the people that live along these areas are, you know, essentially disenfranchised already. These are these are tend to be tough neighborhoods. You know, if you look at Holyoke, there are cities on the hill. You know, the people, the factory owners live up on top of the hill. The mills 
in the in the people who work in the mills tend to be down by the river, yeah. and it, and that's largely the case now. So you know, there's there there is some um, imbalance that is still um, can be reflected, and I think that's becoming more and more part of the uh, conversation nowadays. Well, looking into your crystal ball, your climate change crystal ball, what can we expect for the future? Uh, well, you know, as we're recording this, we're we're moving infrastructure progress forward finally. Um, so I think we're at a critical point. I think time will tell, but I think right here, right now, if some of these programs move forward, um, we could we could be at a turning point. If we don't, uh, the turning point is could be for the worse. I don't want to get political, but if we just look at the trends in, in weather patterns, and never mind what's causing them, but just the simple, the facts, you know, these the storms that are coming through are creating deluges over shorter periods of time. The infrastructure that's protecting our communities have not been maintained. They're going to fail. Um, there are many places along the river where they're more likely to fail. Um, between Northampton and Hadley, um, there's a there's a, a funny bend in the river that is likely to um, give way to nature. Fixing these systems is complicated, expensive. Um, there are all sorts of politics involved in it. So I think we're at an interesting point here today with whether these systems uh, upgrades are implemented, and if so, how and over what period of time. I think we're really in a race right now. And so um, I, I, I'm optimistic, but I also think it's a hard road ahead. Well, it strikes me that this book that you've written is a kind of wake-up call to people who live along the Connecticut River Valley and its tributaries, which is to say most of the people in New England, that it's time to pay attention to the river and think about the possibilities of real flooding in the future. Josh? Yeah, agreed. This has been a great interview. Thank you so much both for spending time with me and for writing this book. This is uh, the Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936. It's published by the History Press. Josh Shanley is the author. He has done great research and provided you know, both powerful images and a great story about a surprisingly significant event even today. And for that, thanks so much. Thank you all. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. You can order Josh Shanley's book, Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936, online or at your favorite bookstore. And for more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored Magazine and todayinconnecticuthistory.com. I'm state historian Walt Woodward, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.